In the talk this evening, I would like to explore a little with you the uh, relationship of past and present and the mutual influence of both. Since quite often, of course, we, in our general view of things, we will speak of the past and giving shape to the present. We will give consideration to this in the satisfactory ways that it does, perhaps through forms of experience, through language, through uh, knowledge and information, through learning, and we will cast our attention back to the past and we will acknowledge at times and in situations the beneficial impact that it has had, that it has on our life. And then too, also, we will look at the past and we will see and experience through our perceptions of the present the unsatisfactory influences and impact and the way that circumstances in the near and distant past have contrived to uh, sometimes explode upon our present, or subtly undermine or corrupt our perceptions of today, of the here and now. And, as it were, we look at the present situations or at ourselves through the eyes of yesterday or yesteryear. And, as I say, we generally seem to think, <coughs> perhaps too exclusively, that we uh, can relate to the present through the impact, the influence of the past. But what we also see from our experience that we equally, and sometimes this is forgotten, that we also, we look at the past through the events of the present, through the circumstances that we are in, in the present. And sometimes we imagine and we deceive ourselves and deceive each other that we can, as it were, are recalling or are looking objectively at what happened yesterday, yesteryear, or in childhood, in conception, in past lives, or however far back enough we are bold to go. And so there's the influence of the past in the present, and there's the influence of the present in the past. And we look at this, the, the initial one first, the influence of the present, I'm sorry, of the past in the present. And we might say that there are three essential kind of influences. One of them is that which we appreciate, the healthy, the wholesome, the valuable uh, influences which enable us to function, enable us to carry out our lives, to live our lives. And there are those influences which we wish weren't present. That if that hadn't happened to us, if we hadn't found ourselves in such and such a circumstance in the past, then our life would be that much more easier our experiences of today would be that much more expansive or joyful. 
And this has been found, and often, of course, quite necessary, either through our own reflection or through the cooperation with another or others, to look quite carefully and sensitively at what the past means for us. Not so much really what it, we believe it actually was, but rather what it means for us in the present. And this occurrence of the past in the present comes, of course, whether we like it or not. Again, I think that one of the uh, myths which does need to be dispelled often is the idea that we have choice. We have been indoctrinated into the conception of much choice in life. So sometimes during the course of the day here, we find ourselves reflecting, thinking about, dwelling upon something which occurred to us. At times, people report here very frequently of waking up in the morning and recalling unusually vivid dreams, nightmares uh, from the night before. One sits and walks, one finds one's taking one's food and one can't remember the spoon or fork going to the food itself and suddenly the plate is empty and one wondered, what happened between the time I sat down and this empty plate now appearing in front of me? And one realized that one was off on some personal, uh, intense storyline, perhaps, of something that happened 5, 10, 15 years ago. And the sheer habit of spoon to food, food to mouth, took place, as it were, by itself while one was off on some other adventure. And so we see this influence where we're, as it were, not by choice, but sometimes dragged to the things of the old. And we dwell in the old. In that, sometimes with thought, one of its deceptive aspects of it is that it seems to give us the idea, but a rather convoluted idea, that the, the, thought which, the thought which is occurring is an accurate statement of what took place. There's a kind of confidence at times which takes place that when we are talking about the past, or thinking about the past, we really know what we're talking about. And we're really thinking accurately about that. And sometimes we don't quite stop long enough in ourselves to actually ask ourselves about the pattern of thinking about what took place. We assume that we, the, the thinking is somehow independent, a kind of detached, clear, objective statement about what happened. And is it any wonder that there is so much conflict and so much confusion when we have come to rely so much on what our thoughts say about what happened? 
So sometimes this is occurring during the day here. And then we are thinking about it, whatever that might have been in the past. And what then occurs inside of that thinking is the thoughts about what somebody else, their view. It might be about ourselves, might be of a situation. And we then imagine that we know what the other person's thoughts are about it. And quite often their thoughts seem to be quite polarized to ours. So then we are sitting in meditation, walking in meditation, with this incredible dialogue going on. He said this, so I said that. She said this, so I say that. <laughs> and it goes back and forth with a very bold assumption that I know what I'm talking about, and even more bold that one thinks one knows what he or she was talking about. And this sets people up for incredible collision course. Both claiming to know the truth of the situation. Both utterly assured of the rightness of their view and both utterly assured equally that the others don't understand. And this conviction which we have with regard to our view and the conviction we have with regard to their view, accurate or inaccurate, ends up like, as I often say, ships passing in the night. Where is the meeting place? And sometimes we look at this involvement in the past and we look at the interpretation of the past and then something begins to perhaps hopefully get a little bit more clear with ourselves and we begin to ask ourselves is it the event of the past which is so significant which I have believed for so long? Or is it my interpretation of it? Is it the event of the past? Or is it the interpretation of it? Quite often in painful pasts, we actually, what we want to say to ourselves, to each other, through our thoughts, through our dialogues, through our communications, what we often we want to say, it's only the event. The event is the thing. The event has made me like I am. And we get a kind of assurance of that. There's almost a comfort in that assurance. Because if we've got the assurance that the event makes me as I am, then we can explain to ourselves and to each other our condition. We've got a really good reason for being unhappy. We've got a really good reason for struggling. We've got a really good reason for blaming. 
because that event made me as I am. And we think the truth, we believe in the truth of the interpretation. And if we were to say to ourselves that the interpretation of the event is certainly as significant as the event, what would that mean for us? The way I am thinking about what happened, the way I am viewing what happened, is as significant, uh, significant as whatever happened. Let's say, if we can allow ourselves to possibly explore that sense that the present matters in so far as the looking at the past is, makes the past what it is, not the past itself. The way of looking at the past makes the past what it is. Not the past of itself, not the past in itself. How I look at it. And I begin to realize that any event which has taken place in my past near or far, I cannot separate my past from my looking at it. I cannot distinguish my past from my looking at it. I cannot isolate it from my way of conceiving of it, my way of interpreting it, my way of thinking about it, my way of regarding it. I cannot make two separate events. If I understand what that means, if I really understand what that means, I'm eternally grateful. So we look at this past, which is the interpretation, and we see this dynamic taking place in our life. And then we recognize that some circumstances of our life appear to make us acutely vulnerable, acutely susceptible to reactivity with the pr in the present. Of course, it's a very peculiar and odd thing in life that People who we acknowledge to be close to us, parents, children, partners, close friends, and the like, <coughs> who have more association with us in the course of the past and the present, more association with us in the course of time, that in a very strange, peculiar way, these people who are closest to us, we often treat the worst. And that people who are not so close to us, we wouldn't, we wouldn't think of treating them in the same way. We wouldn't think of saying the things that we say to our partners to somebody else's partner. 
we wouldn't think of saying the same things to our parents, to other parents, that we would say to our parents, or what we say to our children, which we would never say to anybody else's children. Where does this authority come from? Which seeks to assume it knows best. It knows best where others are at, and my God, one is going to tell them once and for all. Where does this supreme authority emerge from inside of oneself? treat those who are close to us far more unacceptably than we'll treat other people. Sometimes in that pattern of mistreatment, that pattern of kind of abuse to varying degrees, when that way of looking, in this case at the past, carries that kind of tone to it, that resentment to it, that hostility, and it feeds into the past, so to speak, and we do this repetitively, what we end up with certainly isn't any wisdom for sure that we don't end up with, what we tend to end up with is a very simplified view of what makes us as we are as human beings. What we end up with is a solidification of he, she, they, this is the cause and I am the effect. The effect. We don't have any wisdom, we just have a viewpoint. They cause this to me and therefore I am like this because of him, her, this or that. And then sometimes, we, we believe this so much, we've got this idea so solid inside of ourselves that we find we need to talk about it. Or we go on a retreat and think about it. <laughs> and we gain through this an idea of who we are. The idea of who we are is the viewpoint, I am an effect. And we keep relating to others and to ourselves as an effect, an effect of what was, an effect of those circumstances. And that idea becomes our identity. The teachings of enlightenment are to end that identity once and for all. To finish with it, the belief in it, the, the way of viewing has finished once and for all because it's a myth. We are not any effect. It is not our true nature. Sometimes 
in the day of meditation, in the day of awareness, of experiencing uh, sitting and walking times. As I mentioned, we sometimes experience the, uh, to use that uh, fashionable buzzword, we experience our shadow. It's wonderful how, how with language, every year or two, there's a, a new buzzword. I might be behind because it's probably moved on. I haven't been here for six months. And one of the popular ones at the moment, one hears quite a lot, is shadow. And there are a number of books with this word in the title. They're probably selling very well, I would think. And there's certainly a way to interpret and a certain usefulness in that interpretation. But my concern would always be that when we repeat something, too much, that we assume it like the sun and the human being and the shadow. We begin to assume that we or others are always, always have a shadow self, like wandering around, close, waiting to overshadow the clear consciousness and descends like some dark force and tyrannize family. <laughs> tyrannize the present situation as though shadow was something which existed with all human beings like when we walk out into the sunshine. So, just a matter of language here. Fine to use the concept, but please, not with any assumption that shadow has any substance to it. That it's the curse of humanity, it's the original sin of existence or something. So as I say, sometimes in a situation like here and elsewhere, we are engaging in the day. And then some of those who are close to us come to mind. And in their coming to mind, we begin to make a gap. And the gap is between the way they regard what we do with our life and the way that we regard what we do with our life. And they, whoever they are, think differently, and we think differently. They can't understand anybody who could possibly consider coming into a place like this crossing their legs and watching their breath. It would seem, for some people who are close to us, to be the most bizarre, banal activity, and therefore the gap is formed. And this gap, when there is a gap between human beings, particularly between human beings who are close to us as much as any others, we feel uncomfortable in the gap. We want to be understood. And we feel if we're understood, the gap will end. They understand why I meditate. They understand why I am not wanting to live a selfish or an ambitious or a competitive life. They, un they understand why I have, have other kind of values and being so goal-orientated. 
So to be understood is in fact that the gap dissolves. And that's what we're looking for in life. We're looking to end the gap between us. But who believes in it? Who is giving support to the gap? And sometimes we say, well, they're supporting the gap. My parents are, my children are, my friends are, my partners are, my employers, employees, the society is, or whoever we've made a gap with. And we're very, very quick, electrically quick, to say that others make the gap because they don't understand. Perhaps we're shifting responsibility too far away. What is it that we need to understand? Are we cherishing the gap? Have we got some vested interest in some rather bizarre way of not being understood? Is it that by not being understood by those who are close to us, that somehow we get some sense from it of some self-importance? That our identity, our selfness, is somehow tied up with reaction and rebellion. Trying to prove something to others. And therefore, we're making the gap as much as anybody else is making the gap. It's a conspiracy. Things are never all one-sided. Never. If we give ourselves a, a very clean sheet nothing to do with me. It's just how they think about me. It's their problem. It's everybody's problem. It's everybody's issue, a gap. What would it be to realize the end of the gap? So I say issues, apparently deep issues, personal issues, family issues, love issues, past issues, all of which kind of give a whisper, an intimation of a gap, a distance between people who are close to <coughs> us. I say in this room we can finish this gap once and for all. Perhaps somewhere in it, it's, there's some, something to do with the way rather habitually and negatively 
We keep interpreting a situation. We keep, the way we keep looking at a situation between ourselves and another, which has the appearance of separation, that we keep looking at it in s the same way, which keeps th the situation alive in that way. Which keeps the uh, apartness going. And sometimes there is a fear which goes with it. And one of the fears which goes with it is if I drop, if I let go of myself, if I let go of what I am doing, if I let go of my position, then what will happen is I'll just identify with what they tell me. I'll just end up agreeing to their demands. I'll just end up conforming and that conformity will be a kind of strange ending of the gap between us. Can the gap be ended without becoming a prisoner to the demands of others? Sometimes, in situations of process of meditation. The very engagement with the breathing is something, of course, which we privatize during the day. We say ad nauseum, please be with the breath. Please experiencing inhaling and exhaling. There's a usefulness in that contribution to calmness and to relaxation, but equally to a contribution to the dialogues which go on. And so sometimes when we say, we come and we say to ourselves, or we say in the small group, or one-to-one, -one, I've hardly had any contact with the breath. Hardly know that I've got a, a head on my shoulder and a nose in front of the face. All that I know that's going on is some storyline which I feel completely attracted to, swallowed up by, and it's just consuming my whole day. And then we say, I want to get away from the storyline. I want to be able to find my breath. I want to get connected with it. And of course, for relaxation, for calmness, for being here and now, there's a definite usefulness in it. But I wonder, since we've got the whole day here to do absolutely nothing, and hopefully we will do less than nothing as the days go by, that if there is some event, event which is triggering inside of us and it's concerned with your life and your relationship to other people's lives and the distances that can be operating there, can that be an opportunity to see the whole picture very clearly? <coughs> to see it 
wholly, to see it totally, means that there's no prejudice of self. You understand what I mean? Usually when we look, when there's some storyline going on, and it's I and other, all the prejudices are for I. And all the prejudices, where there's a gap, is against other. The gap is fueled by the prejudices. Not the I and the other, but by the prejudices. The bigger the prejudices, the bigger the gap. So the leaning towards I is gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger as one builds up one's case. And the other gets pushed further and further away because they're wrong and I am right. And the gap gets bigger and bigger and it gets infinite. And we are so sure of our self. There's so much confidence in the thinking, judging self. Can we be choiceless? So choiceless there's not a grain of prejudice of self and other. That one could be just as much other as oneself. then we might be realizing the end of the gap. We might make a genuine discovery about life and not live in this foolhardiness of this self-deceit which is the movement of mind with its latent prejudice towards self and therefore towards a dreadful existence. Would we dare risk a choiceless, unbiased awareness? For once. Therefore, for to finish the gap, to finish it so irrevocably that when one speaks of other, one speaks of self, and one knows that from the deepest point in one's heart. One speaks of self, one speaks of other, and one knows that from the deepest point of one's heart. If that's understood, you don't have to do any more meditation. Finished. No more knee pains. No more retreats. You just understood something so beautifully and clearly in life, you're free once and for all. No more seeking. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be liberated from prejudice. May all beings' hearts be awakened. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we please?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.